So this morning, we're going to be talking about marriage. And um, just a little heads up, this is the third time that I've written this sermon. And uh, it's just, it's been hard. I've had to rewrite it. And, um, and it's hard in part because we are in a difficult section in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 6 and 7 is tough terrain, and more tough terrain is coming. It's tough because the stretch of the Bible that we're in has been misused and abused in church history. For example, uh, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 7, chapter 20 through 22, which is coming next week. But Paul writes, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a slave when you were called? Do not be concerned about your freedom. And passages like that were used by slave owners to not and to discourage slaves from pursuing freedom. The passage was twisted. In the same fashion, 1 Corinthians 7, where Paul writes, do not deny one another sexually. That's been twisted. It's been twisted by some men, and we walk away thinking that what Paul means is that your wife can never say no to intimacy. And men will go to this passage, see what Paul is saying, and that's not true. There are times when we should hear no, man or woman. There are times of feasting sexually, and there are times of fasting from that for something, for some other reasons. And then this morning, we're gonna talk about marriage. And that brings pain because of failed marriages, because of betrayal, because of abuse, because of hardship. And any conversation around marriage, our inner lawyers get to working and we don't wanna hear it. And preaching on these subjects as a preacher, it feels like we're walking through landmines. It feels like if I say the wrong thing here, then I'm losing this person there. And if I step on this over here, then this person is tuning the scriptures out. And so it's just been hard uh, to weigh into this, and I ask for much grace. And if you have issues you want to talk about, uh, point them to me. I'd be happy to sit with you outside of this and work through the scriptures with you. But I've also prayed for your hearts as well, that they would be soft and that we would not let our pain and bitter experiences keep us from hearing the truth of the scriptures. And so I'm going to pray and we'll jump in. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. And your word is true. It is life. It is light. It helps us to guard our hearts and our ways. It teaches us, Lord, how to honor you and to uh, walk with you and enjoy you. And Father, in some sense, we all approach these passages with pain, uh, pain of sexual sin and pain of uh, betrayal and, and pain of um, falling short of your glory. And so, Father, speak to us through it and build us up. And thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he has obeyed you in ways that we cannot and that he has covered us with a righteousness that is alien to us and that we are now yours. Holy Spirit, build us up, I pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. 
1 Corinthians 7, and we'll read verses 10 through 16, and I'll also read 39 through 40. And the reason I'm, I'm including verses 39 through 40 with verses 10 through 16 is because Paul is teasing out uh, marriage. And you'll notice that, that um, he anticipates or expects that marriage uh, is a covenant bond that is to be uh, concluded ideally only when a spouse dies. And so to the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. And if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, because of one of you, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But only if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. I think that I too have the Spirit of God. Amen. The single parent family is the fastest growing family type in the United States of America. During the past three decades, the single parent household, i.e. the separated or divorced, has increased at a rate of two and a half times that of a two parent family. A Pew Research study of 130 countries show that the United States of America that we lead the world and the highest rate of children living in single-parent households. A quarter of U.S. children under the age 18 live with one or no, parent, no other adults, more than three times that of children around the world. And you've also heard the stat that one out of every two marriages will end in divorce. And I can't help but think that these numbers are so high is because we have not been able to discern the truth from God's word. And so what I want, want to do this morning is unpack some thoughts, but I want to do it by way of comparing. I want us to think about the lies we believe around marriage and some truths that we must burrow in our hearts. On the one hand, I want to deal with some of the lies that are floating out there that, that we sometimes believe, but I want to put before you truth that you and I need to burrow right here in our hearts. And here's the first lie. The first lie is that marriage is easy. And the truth is marriage is hard. 
And consider how our Disney movies paint romance. The king gets his queen and they live happily ever after, right? We were watching a rom-com over the Christmas break and, and it's, it's the traditional rom-com, right? This woman who's single goes to this uh, photography retreat and she meets this man who is single and they, they mistakenly have been assigned to the, the, the same Airbnb. And because there's like an avalanche and a snowstorm, there is nothing the property owners can do. And these two strangers have to live with each other for a week. And you know how the story ends. They fall in love and then they get married and then they live happily ever after. Right. That, that, that's the narrative. Or think about ways that we sort of do this in our own homes. Perhaps uh, you have a rule in your home, and I'm not telling you how to, to, how, how to manage your home. I'm just saying I think there are some ways that we can manage it that, that might have consequences that we don't intend. Maybe you have a rule where we will not disagree in front of the kids. Oh, the kids are here. Let, we, we, we can't let them see this side of that, right? Or, right, you, you and your spouse are going to counseling because it's hard, or you're meeting with your pastors because marriage is hard. And here's what we'll easily do. We won't let our children know that we're actually going to counseling and to get help. And so the image that they see growing up in our home, because we don't have conflict in front of them, because we wait till they go to sleep to argue, because we quiet and hush our tones when they're around us, because we go get help and we don't let them know what they grow up believing is exactly what Disney tells them, that marriage is easy. And so we end up creating this next generation of people who have this false identity or false sense of the difficulty of marriage. In fact, it's hard. The joining of two sinners into a one flesh union is hard. And at times it feels like we're combining oil and water and not coffee and water. This is why almost 50% of marriages end in divorce. It's because of trouble. And I'm 44, and I got people who were in my wedding who were no longer together. And let me let you in on a secret. We think 50% is high. It was probably just as high or higher in the Greco-Roman world. And this problem is what Paul is addressing. That Thistleton, who I think is, wrote one of the best commentaries on 1 Corinthians out there, he says this, that something is taking place beneath the surface that we're not privy to. Many couples in the church of Corinth want out of their marriages. And this problem is bigger than we think. And so did you notice that Paul is talking about marriage, but there is something beneath the surface where professing Christians are just, we want out. Now, I think Paul is addressing two types of marriages here. There are three types. You have the, the uh, type three is a marriage between one man and one woman, and they both are not Christians, right? God's gift of marriage is a gift to non-Christians, right? You also have Type two, a type two type of marriage 
where there is one believing spouse and one non-believing spouse, and they are married. Now, the scriptures command that we do not marry or date pagans. So the scriptures say, hey, do, the one prohibition in scripture is not that white and black can't marry. It's not that Asian and, 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 or, or Japanese and Chinese can't marry, right? It's not that you can't be from the South and marry someone from the North. The one prohibition in scripture is that you who name the name of Jesus should not marry someone who does not. That's the one prohibition in scripture. And when you see that happening in the Bible, it's never good. So how then are they unequally yoked? We think that when Paul came to Corinth, he preached the gospel for a year and a half, and a husband comes to Jesus. He's already married, but his wife does not. Or the wife comes to Jesus and they're already married and her husband does not. And there the war begins because she is born again. Her eyes are open. Her heart is softened. But she's laying down to a man who is blind, who can't hear. And and that's the tension. And so, Paul, that's a type two type of marriage. And then you have a type one type of marriage. That's where one man is married to one woman and both of them are believers. Now, Paul is addressing type one and type two in this passage. How do you know? Look at verses 10 through 12. Paul is talking about the married. To the married, I give this charge, right? Now, he's talking about those who are equally yoked, believer marrying believer. But then look at verse 12. He says, to the rest. Well, what rest are you talking about? He tells us who the rest is, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, so he calls one a brother, a brother in the Lord who is married to an unbeliever. You catch that? He's talking to two types of marriages, equally yoked and unequally yoked. And did you catch the drift of this passage? They both want out. The Christians are almost about to separate and divorce. And the one who is married to a non-Christian is also trying to separate and divorce. You don't just wake up and decide that. Some pretty hard things have had to happen to make them want to bail on their marriages. It's trouble It's sin, it's hardship, it's selfishness, it's idolatry, it's the flesh, it's the world, it's the devil. By way of application, anyone considering marriage, keep this in your mind. Your spouse will not complete you. Marriage is good, it is holy, it is glorious, it is beautiful. And it's also complicated and hard. This is why I don't like couples to write their own vows on their wedding day. You ought to see the stuff that I see. (laughs) We're going to write our own vows, Pastor. No, you're not. (laughs) You want to write your own vows? Let me see them. This ain't the time to be creative. I don't want to hear your poetry, right? (laughs) 
You do your spoken word on your own date night, not here on your wedding day, right? You need them old-fashioned vows. Marriage is about loving you in good times and bad times, in times of excess and times of poverty, in times of health and times when you get cancer and you're sick and you can't walk. In times of glorious toasting and in times of tears and troubles. See, those are the old school marriage vows that get at the heart of the troubles that are coming our way in marriage. And so if you're married, raise your hand. Keep your hands up if your spouse has met your every desire. Now, y'all look around the room. Kids, look around the room. Both your mother and your father are imperfect. And we argue and we disagree and we sin against each other and we need forgiveness. And it's hard. The world, Disney won't show you that. The Bible does. That's the first lie, the first piece of truth. Second lie is that marriage should be easily set aside by spouses. That's the lie. The truth is marriage is joined by God and should only be severed by God when he brings you to himself. And if there are like real biblical grounds, and I'm going to put that in small print, The, the marriage might have died. Now, look, y'all, we don't know the troubles going on. Scholars are all over the place. Like, you know, Brian is teaching a hermeneutics class, and at some point, he's going to talk to you in the class about context and how context informs meaning. And so you don't extract one verse out of its context, like the surrounding verses and chapters and books helps you understand and interpret that piece. So some scholars say, hey, let's, let, let's keep in step with that. If you step back and look at the context of 1 Corinthians 7, what just happened in 1 Corinthians 6? Somebody was sleeping with prostitutes. And what happened in 1 Corinthians 7? Now somebody is withholding intimacy. And so some scholars say that, man, maybe these dudes are going out there to pornography and prostitution, and then they want to come home and lay with their own wives, and their own wives are like, whoa, dude, you think you can just go do that and lay with me? Some say it's the other way around. Maybe the, 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 there's denial in the bedroom, and this guy or these women lack self-control, and so they, they go outside of the marriage bed, and guess what? Paul calls them both wrong. Some scholars say, hey, you're probably reading too much. Some say that, you know, and I'll quote Moffitt. He says, the real issue is this feminist party in the local church. They claim freedom to desert or divorce their husbands in the service of Jesus. Their husbands are dead weight, keeping them from experiencing the heights of spirituality. Right? Some say, hey, it's the Jewish and Greco-Roman cultures and their sin pressing in. Now, think about this. When you think about the church in Corinth, what image comes to mind? Do you think it's homogenous ethnically? 
Do you think it's homogenous culturally? Or do you believe what Acts tells us that when Paul went to Corinth and stayed for a year and a half, he preached the gospel next door to a Jewish synagogue and some Jews and some Greco-Romans like like they come to faith. And so now in this one church, you have men and women and Jews and Gentiles and slaves and free like in this one church, you have this multi everything. And because they all came from various cultural backgrounds, they're carrying their cultural baggage inside of the church and letting their culture teach them how to behave and not the gospel. And so in the Greco-Roman world, man or woman could initiate divorce equally. Seneca said women would be numbered not by their years, but by their number of divorces. I don't know Latin, some of y'all do, but one Latin phrase, tuas, res, to be habeto, if that was uttered, you could end the marriage, says Gardner in his commentary. So the Greco-Roman world was loose. You don't like him, trade him in, get an upgrade. You don't like her, trade her in, get an upgrade, right? That's, that, that's the culture. And then what about the Jews? We already know from Jesus's interaction with the Jews that they were around him giving, not giving certificates and just divorcing their wives left and right. And they finally like come to Jesus. But, but even the Jewish men had the upper hand where depending on which school of thought you came out of, you could divorce your wife with a certificate. Some were strict. That was the, the uh, let me get this right, the, uh, the school of Shemai. You cannot put your wife away unless she has been unchaste. But there were some really loose schools, the, the, the Mishnah or the Hillel. You can divorce your wife if she burns your food or if she can't bear children for you. So now think about that. Like, think about that. You burn my food and you're done. Or you utter this Latin phrase to me and now I'm single again. Like, that's the culture. And did you catch that? Type one and type two marriages are caving into it. Which way do you think Paul's words will lean? Will they lean towards stay or will they lean towards leave so if, if you can imagine i got a scale in my hand and, and we we christians don't like scales because we like you know some people say hey how do you get to heaven my good deeds need to outweigh my bad deeds and when god does the math if if my good deeds are more than he lets me to heaven that's a lie right Your good deeds don't get you nowhere. Faith in Jesus does his righteousness. But because of that illustration, we don't like to talk about scales. But I want to put a scale in front of you. Given the troubles, given everything that we know about this text, where do you think Paul is going to lean? Is he going to lean towards leave your marriage or is he going to lean and give more weight to stay? Y'all already know it. Look, I want to honor. There are clauses to leave if she does not consent, if he does not consent. But if you do leave, remain unmarried and be or be reconciled. 
But if you start to weigh his command to stay, he says, you should not separate from her. You should not divorce your wife. Even if there is an unbeliever, she consents to stay. Do not divorce her. If a woman who has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents, do not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Look at verse 15 or 16. For how do you know wife whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know husband whether you will save your wife? You see the balance? There is no balance. It tilts towards remaining. And the world out there will tell you all you got to pay is $158 and wait 60 days. And the two of you find a lawyer and you can get divorced. The world out there says you can walk away with irreconcilable differences. And it's important for us to remember this emphasis because I've noticed a dangerous posture in our circles. Some, you can't talk about marriage without them inserting the biblical grounds for divorce. We want to jump to what conditions give us freedom to leave And we want to ignore the call and possibility of staying, even when it's hard. I would encourage you to read the PCA position paper on divorce and remarriage. And I put that here in the bulletin as a reflection quote. It was published in 1992. But listen to what the committee says. The committee is not pleased with the wording of the request, whether a Christian may have other legitimate grounds for divorce, as though the task of the committee would be to find if there were other legal ways out of a marriage. It is better to view Matthew 19:9 not as providing a ground for divorce, but rather an exception to the principle of permanence of marriage. You see what the committee is saying? You're asking us a question, but it's the wrong question. The question should be phrased around permanence and staying and forgiving and fighting for it. Beloved, Jesus allows for divorce, but he never commands it. It is allowed because of sin and hardness of heart. And this means that when our marriages get tough, we should reach out and get the right help. Not all help is right help. We should get godly pastoral oversight, biblical counseling for transformation, and the covenant community before we decide on our own in our pain to end it. Which moves us to lie number three. Lie number three is marriage is just about staying together. And the truth is marriage is about growing together in holiness and truth. I love to see on TV these people who've been married longer than I've been alive. That's a badge of honor, right? But here's what sometimes happens, isn't isn't it? We think the goal is to rake up seconds and minutes and hours and years and decades. And that's the badge. I've been married 40 years. 
and we got 50 years. Well, we got 60 years and y'all hate each other. But the, well, what's the badge? The badge is time. Like, like just staying together. Like, like that is what God is after. Do you believe that there is something better than just staying together, beloved? It's growing together in holiness and truth and repentance and forgiveness and openness and oneness and earned trust and deepened trust. And we need to hear this, why? Because I've also noticed another dangerous trend in our circles. And it goes like this, hey, you know God don't like divorce. Yep, I'm with you 100 player. Then this must mean that no matter how I live and what I've done, then my, my, my spouse must stay with me in marriage. Like, whoa, calm down player. You've taken the liberty to gravely harm your marriage, but then you want to appeal to the permanence of marriage. And in one sense, this person is embracing the lie that marriage is just about staying together and it's not. It's about growing together in holiness, truth, love, sacrifice, repentance, rebuilt trust, oneness, worship, delight in Jesus and the gospel in word and deed, mind and heart. That's the goal of marriage. And we see Paul pushing against the lie in this passage. Some will come to this passage and say, no, we got to stay married. We got to stay married. We got to stay married. And did you notice that Paul actually makes a concession in verse 11? But if she does, you know, if she does separate, she should remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. Right. So he makes a provision to leave. Look in section two. If she consents then they can stay. Look at verse 15. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Do you see this idea of consenting? It's more than lip service. It's more than just saying, I want to be in the marriage. The consenting is life service. It's repentance. It's the softening of heart. It is becoming the changed man or woman that may have sabotaged your marriage. It's agreeing to the terms that you come together with. Do you see? Paul isn't saying the goal of marriage is to just stay together. It's to grow together. And this is where we have to let the rest of the book inform this. Remain in the marriage and be maturing in the Lord. Stop grieving the Holy Spirit. Put your pride and division to death. Remain in the marriage and count your old self dead and work with God's grace and help to be the new man or woman you are in Jesus. Remain in the marriage and you stop going to prostitutes. And stop looking at porn. You remain in the marriage and you marvel at Christ crucified. 
You remain in the marriage and you esteem your pastors as those who will give an account. You remain in the marriage and you be killing and knowing your idols. Remain in the marriage and surrender your rights, chapter 9. Remain in the marriage and treasure Jesus. Remain in the marriage and learn to love, chapter 13. Put on patience. Stop insisting for your own way. Put away irritability. Remain in the marriage and be rejoicing in truth. Remain in the marriage and lock arms and hearts and enter worship. And if one partner in the marriage sins against a marriage with egregious sins and persists in those sins and do, does not change and continues to lie and harm, though they give you lip service, their life service says they don't love you and the marriage is dead. And so in those instances, Paul says, God calls you to peace. And you have grounds. You are not enslaved. And it's because of hardness of heart. The lie we believe is just about getting years. The truth is about continued oneness, intimacy, connection, and change. And this is by the Spirit. Lie number four. Marriages and families can't be repaired, or if they're severed, divorcees cannot find healing. And the truth of the matter is some families will be repaired. And if you have to be divorced, you have a husband in heaven who will love you and attend to you and heal you. This is a lie. The lie is that this can't happen. And this is reinforced in literature. I got three books right now in my mind. And they talk about marriage and divorce and what divorce does to children and what divorce does to uh, women and what divorce does economically, socially, spiritually, and psychologically, right? I got a book in my mind about the hardships. And here's the thing, those books are important, but they all discount one thing. They discount the hand of a mighty God. If you just look at statistics, and just read books, and you don't see that your God can raise people from the dead, that your God can bridge a chasm between him and you, can he not heal a chasm between a husband and a wife? Like, like do, do we think everything is impossible for him? And what you're going to see in this text is, Paul says, don't believe the lie. What is impossible with man is possible with God. The world says there's no hope for repair. The Bible says there is. Now notice it, right? Look, I intentionally did not emphasize this word in verse 11, but it's reconciliation is possible. Look at type one. Look at, look at verse 11 again. If she does leave, she should remain unmarried or else be what? Reconciled to her husband. So no, 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 think about that. 
Like Paul is actually saying, reconciliation is possible between warring and feuding spouses. And this ain't no cheap recommendation, rec- reconciliation, right? Where you just ignore what I did, right? This ain't no cheap reconciliation where you just suppress it and ignore it. Like the language here for reconciliation is powerful. It means that something has happened to sever the friendship and the relationship. It was broken and it entails one person or both people owning what they did to call the rubber and then walking in true repentance and granting forgiveness to the other person and counting the offense dead and done. You see the hope that's already there? Paul believes, yeah, you might have did that, but you actually can in the gospel have reconciliation. Salvation is possible. Look at type two. Christians married to a non-Christian who wants to remain. Guess what? He says, look, the unbelieving spouse is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her believing husband. Look at verse 16. How do you know, wife, believing wife, that you will not save your husband? How do you know, believing husbands, that you will not save your wives? That sounds just like 1 Peter 3 does it. And Peter says, Uh, Wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some of them do not obey the word of truth, they may be won to Jesus without a word, but by your conduct. Do you see? This would have caused mouths to drop if you were Jewish. Y'all remember Ezra chapter 10 and Nehemiah 13. Go back and kind of read those two chapters on your own. They're rebuilding And Ezra and Nehemiah discover that God's people had intermarried with pagans. And they had kids and their kids couldn't even speak the language of the Jews. And what did Ezra and Nehemiah do? Put your foreign wives away. Nehemiah went so far and did it. I'm going to put them away for you, right? (laughs) Can you imagine what Jews would have thought when they read this? Is Paul going to tell us to put them away? What does Paul say? If they consent, don't put them away. Why? Because there is a power at work in you now, and his name is Holy Spirit, And he is just not power. He is a person. And greater is the one that is in you than the one that is in the world. You see, back then, you would be contaminated and and called away. But Holy Spirit is in you. I love what John Calvin says about this. He says, the godliness of one believer does more to sanctify the marriage than the ungodliness of the other person to make it unclean. This means that a praying wife, a worshiping wife, a God-loving husband, a worshiping husband, there is mighty power to change the other person. Do you believe that salvation can come? What about the children? Will they be okay? Should we fear for them? What is this marital trouble going to do to them? 
Did you notice what Paul says? He says, otherwise your children would be unclean, but as it is, because of one of you, they are holy. So think about that. I know we hear about what divorce might do to our children, right? I know we hear what marital problems might do to our children, but what Paul is actually saying is, do you get it? God loves your children more than you do. He is the faithful God who keeps covenant to you and your children and to their children to 1,000 generations. He is the good husband. He is the good wife. And he is relentless. And they are holy. The Bible says what, God, what, what is intended for evil, God makes good. If God specializes in raising dead people to life, he can breathe new life in troubled marriages. If God says he cares about our children and their children to a thousand generations, do we not think he cannot care for ours? If God's heart is towards widows, will he not move with compassion and warmth towards those who are widowed? because their marriage has died on the account of someone else who killed it. How big is your God? There are people in this congregation whose marriages have endured hell and heaven's power came near. And there are people in this congregation's whose marriages have died, and they were in the pit, and they felt shame and loss and grief. And you know what? God has touched them and been there for them and held them up. So there's a, a Japanese form of pottery called kintsugi and it's from two words kin means gold and sugi means joinery and it's popular because it's the art of fixing broken pottery with a lacquer resin mixed with gold you see in america we we prize and we think beauty is that which with is without blemish or fault but in the Japanese culture, beauty isn't that which is out without blemish or fault. Beauty is when something has been broken and then mixed with gold and, and, and in the hands of a master and it's put back together. That is kintsugi. And do you believe, Redeemer, that marriages can be broken and there's the hands of one in heaven who can artfully put things back together and you have something beautiful that you did not create by yourself. And if you've had to be divorced and your heart was shattered because of unfaithfulness and betrayal, do you believe that those same hands come to you and put you back together? The world says it can't happen. God says it will. Thank you.
which moves us to our last point. I'm going to be so quick. We'll try to be quick. My marriage is just about us and our love. We hear that, right? The truth is your marriage is about something deeper. It's about God's love for his church. And you get to be an actor in the grand drama, playing your role by the spirit of loving and serving and staying and forgiving. John Piper says the ultimate thing we can say about marriage is that it exists for the glory of God. It exists to display God. Marriage is patterned after Christ's covenant relationship to the church. And therefore, the highest meaning and the most ultimate purpose of marriage is to put the covenant relationship between Christ and the church on display for us and the world to see. And this is why I had Brian read from Ezekiel. Ezekiel gives us the image of Israel wallowing in their blood and in their filth, and no one wanted them. And he walked past them. And he says, let me bathe you. And let me feed you. And let me take you to myself. And let me nourish you. And let me protect you. This is why Jesus calls himself the groom and his bride is the church. And this is why eternity will be inaugurated with a marriage supper of the lamb where the one who left the right hand of God, who came to earth, who washed us in his blood on the cross, will bring us back to himself and beautify us forever. And in our earthly marriages, it is about that dance. It is about husbands laying down our lives. Is it about wives and honoring and serving and loving? And it's about us doing this thing together until Jesus calls us home. And when we get the majesty of our union with Christ as our greater husband, and we are his bride, but in a greater sense, he will not cast us away. He is faithful. He is patient. He is kind. And we respond to his loving kindness with honor and fidelity and obedience. And our earthly marriages point to that. I'll close with these words by John Piper. And he wrote these to his wife, Noel. He says, Noel, if we live another 20 years, our marriage will get to be 60 years old. And I'm judging from what I see in the Bible in my memory, it will still have been a momentary marriage. But it has been so much more than momentary. It is a parable of permanence written from eternity about the greatest story that ever was, the parable about Christ and his church. And it has been a great honor to take this stage with you. What exalted roles we have been given to play. And someday I will take your hand and I will stand on this stage and we will make one last bow together. 
and the parable will be over and the everlasting reality will begin. That's what your marriages were made for. To walk each other to Christ and to take bow together and to be one with him forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for your spirit and thank you for your help. Father, I pray that if something that has been uttered that is not true, may it be forgotten. And if it is true, may it be remembered by your spirit forever. We lift up our marriages to you. Make us men who love our wives like Christ loved the church. Give us forgiveness in that area. Make us women who honor and serve our husbands and make us all faithful brides of King Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.